I may have shared this before, but my wife went through a particularly difficult season after our third child was born. And um, she just got frustrated, um, sad, confused, and disappointed, if I'm going to be completely honest. Not in me as her husband, <laughs> thankfully, but in God. She would pray and it would feel like nothing was happening. And uh, no matter how much time she read her Bible or went to church, she couldn't seem to shake just this overall sadness. There are some chemical things happening. Uh, if you're a, a mom, you probably already know that. But she knew that it, it went even, even deeper than that. And she started journaling through the book of Psalms. It's 150 poems that David writes. And almost every single one of them end up becoming like a prayer. So what she did was, in her notebook, composition notebook that you get at Walgreens for like $1.19, one of those things, she started reading through each one of the Psalms and rewriting it in her own words. And what surprised her was how often David prayed prayers that she felt like praying but didn't know she could. I'll Just a few. I just started going through Psalms 1 and just... Just reading the first couple of verses, listen to this. Psalm chapter four, verse one, answer me when I call to you, O God. David prays, um, God, you declare me innocent. Free me from my troubles. Have mercy on me. Hear my prayer. Psalm five, verse one, O Lord, hear me as I pray. Pay attention to me as I groan. Psalm 10, chapter one, O Lord, why do you stand so far away from me? Why do you hide when I am in trouble? Psalm 13, verse 1, O Lord, how long do you plan on forgetting me? Forever? How long will you look the other way when I call out to you? <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, last week we had said that there's a lot of people that believe that prayer is just a powerful placebo that makes us feel better and sometimes even prevents us from being proactive and affecting the kind of change that's within our power to make. But when you read the kind of prayers that are made in the Bible, often these prayers have nothing to do with me asking God to heal somebody or to give me a bunch of things that I don't have. And we said that last, last week, we had said that prayer is simply communication with God. That's all it is. It's, it's just talking. And the younger we are in our faith, the more likely those conversations are simply us asking for things. But just like a dad would tell a three-year-old who's always asking for everything no most of the time, God might end up telling you most of the time also. But the point of, then you'll get frustrated because you never get what you're asking for. And then we often, like toddlers, will hold our breath and, and try to punish God by not talking to him anymore. But that was never the point of prayer. It's a behavior that we choose because we know that we have access to God. That's what we talked about last week. This week, I wanted to talk about our motivation for praying. Why do we pray? Why should we pray? That's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at the three reasons why we should pray even if we don't get what we want. 
And there's one story in the life of David. So just like my wife was looking at the life of David and the stories that are the, the different prayers that he had written out for an encouragement. We're going to look at one of the most tragic things that ever happens in the life of David and the role that prayer played and what happened in his life as a result. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to go to 2 Samuel. I'm going to be in chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 13 to 24. That's going to be our main text for the teaching today. Now, there's a little bit of context I need to give you. David has now become king, but when David started off, he was a he was a fugitive. Um, he hadn't broken any laws, uh, but he, or, or let me back up even, even more. So David was a shepherd who'd been anointed king by Samuel. The only problem is that Israel's first king, King Saul, was still on the throne. Now, as God would have it, Saul and the rest of Israel are camped against their great nemesis, Philistines, and his dad sends David to the, to the front to check on his brothers and to take some gifts to the captain of, of his of brother's units. Goliath is there. You've heard this story. Possibly, even if you're not religious, you may be familiar with David and Goliath. And this is when David first gets on King Saul's radar. King Saul invites David to become a part of his retinue, his posse, his entourage. David's a skilled musician, and every time uh, the king gets in a bad mood, David plays the harp, and it shakes the bad mood from Saul. But weirdly, Saul somehow finds out that David's been anointed, but he's still working against the plans of God so that his own son, Jonathan, will become the next king. Jonathan's best friend in the world, though, is David, and this drives Saul nuts that his son, who should be the next king, is best friends with the one that everybody knows is going to be to actually be the next the next king. And, and so the king goes after him. Like that's that's David's life. When he's in the wilderness as a fugitive, he develops some close friends with the Bible describes them as thieves and ruffians. And these become known as, ironically, the 30 mighty men of valor. Like they become legends. It's like David's elite forces who've been with him since before he was ever crowned king. He'd, he'd been anointed as a teenager, but it was over a decade before he actually was crowned king. And one of these guys' name is Uriah, and he was a Hittite. He wasn't even a Jew. Uh, he's just one of the ruffians, a vagabond living in the desert who somehow gets attached to David and becomes one of David's most intimate closest lifelong friends. The 30 mighty men of valor go to battle and David now stays home. And by chance, sees Uriah's wife and manipulates the circumstances so that he gets the opportunity to be with her and he gets her pregnant. David uh, doesn't want the shame associated with this. Um, he's not even, God had always told David that he needed to go to war with his people. Like, if you're going to go, if you're going to send people into battle, you need to go with them. But David wasn't even listening to God, wasn't talking to God at this point. Like, what God wanted and what God expected from David wasn't, wasn't even a concern to David at this point. But what he does is he calls Uriah back from the front so that Uriah will go home. And when the baby shows up nine months later, everybody would just assume it was Uriah's. But Uriah said, I'm not going to go home if my men can't 
David gets him drunk so that maybe if he can become inebriated, then he'll go back home, but he still doesn't. And so David sends him back to the front with a note that says to Uriah's commanding officer, Joab, says, take the men to the hottest part of the battle and then give a signal to everybody but Uriah to turn around and run at the same time so that Uriah would be killed. That's exactly what happens. There's a prophet that God sends to David who tells a story that highlights the injustice of what David has done, but through a metaphor. So there's a man who has a whole flock of sheep and he has a guest over. So what he does, instead of sacrificing one of his sheep for his guest, he robs the only sheep of his next door neighbor. And this next door neighbor has raised the sheep from a lamb and, and it's really more of a pet than anything else. But the man steals this family's only sheep and kills it to offer it for his friend uh, rather than using one of his own. What do you think ought to be done to this man? And David's furious and said, that man ought to die. That's horrible. Then Nathan says, David, you are the man. You could have had any woman in Israel, but what you did was you took Uriah the Hittite's wife and she's become pregnant. All right, sorry for the long story, but now you know all the context this is the backdrop. We're in the middle of the movie, right? So you just walked in, you sat down in the theater next to somebody said, so what's happened so far? That's what's happened so far. Here we at 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, yeah, you have. But the Lord has forgiven you. You, uh, and you won't die for this sin. This is one of the most difficult verses to read in the entire Bible, what I'm about to read now. Nevertheless, because you've shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord, by doing this, your child is going to die. And after Nathan returned to his home, the Lord sent a deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's wife. She has a very famous name, by the way. Her name is Bathsheba, if I didn't already mention it. Verse 16, David begged God to spare the child and he went without food, that's fasting, and lay all night on the bare ground. The elders of his household pleaded with him to get up and eat with them, but he refused. Then on the seventh day, the child died. David's advisors were afraid to tell him and they said, he wouldn't listen to reason while the child was ill. They said, what drastic thing will he do when he hears that his child is dead? When David saw them whispering to each other, he realized what had happened. So he said, did my child die? Yes, they replied, he is dead. And then David shocked them. David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on his lotions and changed his clothes. Then he went to the tabernacle and worshiped the Lord. After that, he returned to the palace and was served food and he ate. And his advisors were amazed. Well, he said, we don't understand you. They told him, while the child was living, you wept and refused to eat. But now that the child is dead, you've stopped your mourning and are eating again. David replied, I fasted and wept while the child was alive, for I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let my child live. But now that he hasn't, why should I fast when the child is dead? Can I bring him back again? The obvious answer is no. So then he said, I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and slept with her, and she became pregnant, gave birth to a son, 
And David named him, are you ready for this? Solomon. That's the most famous of all of David's kids. You just might not have known the drama involved in his mother and father's relationship. Uh, and then it says, the last phrase of verse 24 says, and the Lord loved the child. There's three things that I see in this story as it relates to the motivation for prayer. This is why we pray. We don't pray just to get the things that we want. And now, Jesus said we could do that. He said, you remember that our Father, give us this day our daily bread, right? So if there's things that you need, by all means, take them to God. But if God doesn't give you what you asked for, like God did not give David what he asked for, we don't just give up on the whole idea of prayer and the whole thing's just a placebo to make people feel better. But it obviously doesn't work because I didn't get what I wanted as though God was your genie that if you rubbed the lamp, he owes you three wishes, right? Or a magic wand that he can wave over a circumstance and, and make better. And he could, just like I could give my kids cereal for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but I'm, I'm not. I see things from a better perspective than my children, so I'm going to do what's best, what's right, whether it's what they wanted or not. But in this one story, I see the reasons why I should continue praying even when I don't get what I want. And the first reason is this, prayer reconciles us to God. The verse 13 said, then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for that sin. Now, saying our prayers isn't what reconciles us to God. But it was the repentance that David expressed through prayer that reconciles us to God. John, one of the apostles of Jesus, says in the first letter that he wrote to all the churches, and if you were raised in Sunday school in a Protestant church or a CCD in a Catholic church, you might remember this verse. First John chapter 1, verse 9 says, But if we confess our sins to God, that he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, from all, from all wickedness. So it's in this confession, this prayer of confession, uh, it's this repentance that washes us from our sin and clean, cleans us from the stain of it. It reconciles us to God. Now, you, you might would say in the passage of Scripture that David confessed that he had sinned to Nathan, but it wasn't Nathan uh, that David prayed to. So where's the prayer here? Like, so David says, I have sinned against God. And David says, and God, God has forgiven you because of your repentance. Where's the repentance? The repentance is actually in Psalm chapter 51. David wrote out the prayer that he made before God as a result of Nathan saying, you're the man. You deserve to die for what you've done. And David, knowing that he had sinned against God because of what he had done, First, chronologically, to Bathsheba and the power that he had over her and the imbalance of influence. And then his cover-up by murdering one of the guys that had been with him since he was a kid. By, by the way, shockingly, the scripture goes on to say in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, that David was known by God as the man after God's own heart, which is crazy because he's an adulterer and a murderer which is nuts. 
But David prayed, and in his prayer, he expressed his repentance, and he was reconciled to God. Here's the prayer. Psalm chapter 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from this guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize how I have rebelled against you. I, it haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is fair. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire <coughs> honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, dear God, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they'll return to you. Forgive me, dear God, for shedding blood. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Bro, that's, that's a prayer. And that's the kind of prayer that reconciles us to God. And that's why you and I need to pray. You and I need to keep going back to the God who is sovereign, the God who is judge and jury of all of mankind, the one who loves you in spite of your sin, but wants you to repent of that sin. Um, none of my kids are perfect, and I love all of them no matter what. I really do. But that doesn't mean that everything they do is okay. And when they've done wrong, I have an expectation of them that they, one, admit that they're wrong and express remorse for what they've done because the sin breaks the relationship. Not the standing, not their position and relationship. Like when, when one sibling hurts another sibling, I interject myself and I, I'm, I have them reconcile with each other because the relationship has been broken. It's not that they're no longer brother and sister or that you're no longer God's child and he's no longer your father. It's that the relationship has become strained by the debt we've created because of our sin. And what prayer does is it reconciles us to God. It brings us back into right standing with him is what it does. Notice that David's prayer isn't a quick get-out-of-jail-free card. He wasn't saying in this prayer that I don't want nothing to happen to me. David even said, your judgment against me is just. Like David was broken because the relationship had become strained. And that's why he prayed. And this reason why you and I need to pray. The second thing that I see that David did, the motivation behind this prayer, is that prayer recenters our lives on the goodness of God. And the will of God is what it does. In verse 16, David begged God to spare the child, and he went without food and lay all night on the bare ground. The elders of his household pleaded with him to get up and eat with them, but he refused. David wasn't 
talking with God at all before this, uh, in the middle of his sin. He didn't care what God cared about, and he had no regard for what God wanted from him. He had drifted from the will of God. He had gone off-center in his relationship with God and was no longer leaning into his relationship with God. So verse 22 says, I, I replied, or David replied, I fasted and wept while the child was alive, for I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. In this whole idea of recentering, what I'm acknowledging when I pray is that I am dependent on God. That's how it recenters me every time I pray. I may or may not get what I'm asking for, and I'm going to keep asking. But one, it reconciles me to God. It keeps me in close relationship with God. But two, it keeps me dependent and centered on the will of God is what it does. It's a constant reminder that Sean is not the king of Sean's universe. That's what it is. I'm talking to not just a generic higher power. I'm talking to the sovereign creator God of everything in existence. And I'm saying, God, I am utterly dependent on what you want for my life. And because I get to call you father, I'll tell you what I want. But what you need to know, <laughs> what you already know, is that what I want more than what I want is what you want for me. So prayer reconciles me to God and it recenters me around the will of God for my life is what it does. Soren Kierkegaard, he said this, the function of prayer is not to influence God, but rather to change the nature of the one who prays. Truthfully, in a similar situation, many other people would have turned their shoulders toward God in pride because he wasn't doing what they wanted right? You're not going to die, but the child will. Well, then I'm never going to talk to you again. And then metaphorically speaking, we, we hold our breath and sit in the corner as if we're punishing God. But David doesn't do this, even though he's heard the worst possible news. And there may have even been a part of him that wished he could die instead of the child. He said, I know there's only one person I can talk to in this moment, and it's going to be God. And if he does what I want him to do, great. And if he doesn't do what I want him to do, great. He's still God, and I am not. There's this idea of performance-based religion here and grace-oriented faith that we see in this passage of Scripture. So the idea that God loves me if I do what he wants, therefore I will love God if he does what I want. But where David had come to, and that's this performance thing where I pull this lever, I go to church, I read my Bible, I get baptized, I go to catechism, I get confirmed, I do all of these things. And now God, God owes me because I've done all of this other stuff. So truthfully, since I did all of that stuff so that God will love me, he'd better do all of this stuff so that I will love him in return. That has nothing to do with grace, right? And that, that's, that's not how we're reconciled to God. Grace says, I am loved as I am, therefore, grace says, I will love God as he is. That's how it recenters me around the will of God. And that brings me to the third and final thing that prayer restores a healthy heart of worship. 
Verse 19, when David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he's dead. And they were expecting David to completely fall out. You've been to funerals. I, I have too. They're, oh my gosh. They're, they're heartbreaking is what they are. Except for this one. David finds out that his son has died and he does what nobody expects. Verse 20, then David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions, changed his clothes. He went to the tabernacle and he worshiped. He didn't get anything he asked for except forgiveness, right? But he begged God, like he didn't eat for seven days and laid on the floor prostrate before the presence of God, begging a man after God's own heart, begging God to change his heart. And God said, no. And David gets up, takes a shower, and goes to church and worship God. That's what he does. Worship is an expression of devotion to something or someone. And it shocked David that he would worship God when this happened. It's, it reminds me, I was talking to my wife about it this week, what Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's, that's what David did. That's this healthy heart of worship. It's coming to the place where I recognize, and this is what I do in prayer. God, you don't owe me anything. You are good if everything goes bad. Truthfully, I came from my mother's womb without anything. Poor and naked. And I will leave this life the exact same way. Poor and naked. So blessed be the name of the Lord. I will worship God. I'll worship God for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health, and for better or for worse. I worship God. That's what it is. Here's the point. Prayer prioritizes my relationship with God over the gifts from God. David knew that there was somebody greater than him, even if he knew he was greater than everybody else. It took him getting caught in horrible sin for him to be reminded of this. But he responded appropriately. And in this short story, probably the, the worst week of David's life, or one of them, we see the reason why we pray. We pray not just to get whatever we want from God. He's not my genie. We pray to be reconciled to God, to recenter ourselves around the will of God for our lives, and to restore our worship and healthy relationship with God. And here's the cool thing. Because David did this, right? Like, think about it. David was already married, and he's a king, and this is, God, by the way, God never condones the multiple wives thing. It mentions it because it happened. Um, 
The priest, by the way, never had multiple wives uh, because that's not the way God wanted it to be. Uh, it doesn't, sorry, that's a, that's a whole side trail. But David had all, all these wives and dozens of other, of other kids. You know who becomes the next king of Israel? David and Bathsheba's second child. Isn't that crazy? Like David did something horrible. Bathsheba should have never been his wife and should have never been the mother to any one of his children. He did a horrible thing to both Bathsheba and her husband, Uriah. But when God reconciles, he... We sing a song here at Grace Church uh, that somebody else wrote, but he brings beauty from ashes. That's what God does. He brings beautiful things out of horrible things. He takes what Satan brings into our life to ruin us, and then deconstructs that thing and then puts it back together again as a platform on which we can stand and appoint other people to God for the rest of our lives. In fact, Bathsheba is one of only four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus. There's only four women. It's, it's father, 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 father. It mentions a lady, mentions another lady. Uh, and then it, and then it mentions, and then it mentions Bathsheba. I love that. I absolutely love that. What if David had never repented? What if he didn't place himself under the authority of God and recenter himself around the will of God? What if he refused to worship? If David hadn't prayed, I don't think Solomon would have ever been king and we'd have never heard from Bathsheba ever again. That's how I think. I mean, we, we don't know because it doesn't matter because he did. Here's what I know. Prayer brings God's best out of my worst. That's what it does. That's why I need to pray. It brings God's best out of my worst. Prayer brings me into the presence of the one who loves me more than anyone. That's why I need to pray. Prayer opens me up to what God wants, even if it's not what I wanted, and that's why I need to pray. In prayer, my center of gravity shifts. My heart is healed. My mind is changed. And my life is redeemed, is rescued. That's why we pray. And that's why we're going to pray now. So if you would, bow your head with me. God, I, I love you. Like, I, I genuinely, I, I love you. I, I can't, like Jesus said last week, we are your dearly beloved. And I'd, I don't even know what to say to that. It doesn't feel real that the creator of the sun, like the sun, actually gives a rip about me. It's, a, it's amazing. The fact that I have access to you is, is mind-blowing. I can just I could just talk to you and say whatever I want. And you listen because you care. Just wanna just wanna say thank you. Truthfully, I'm thankful for every time that I've repented in prayer and you've reconciled me. God, all of the different ways that my life begins to slip off track 
and I start going in a different direction than what you intended, when I pray, you give me the opportunity to recenter my life and get back on track again. That's what you did with David. God, um, I'm thankful for that. I'm asking that you heal broken hearts and that you remind us to worship you, whether we get what we wanted or not. Because naked we came from our mother's womb and naked we shall return. So blessed be the name of the Lord. If you're spiritually disconnected from God, then your prayer is God forgive me and save me too. Reconcile me to yourself. I don't wanna run from you anymore. God, I love you and I'm glad that you love me. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for raising from the dead with new life on the third day. And thank you for willing, being willing to give me new life also. I want that. Christian, if you've kind of slidden back to the ways you were, you need to pray like David. Um, God, thank you that you're willing to welcome any one of us back home. We love you and we thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name and we all say together, amen.